Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bonner. Welcome to the Science of Success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick. With a focus on always having our discussions rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. In this episode, we discuss how you can create success by mashing two seemingly unrelated ideas together, why energy is the currency of the biological world, and how that impacts the evolution of money within our society. We go deep into understanding money and its role in our lives, and we look at why you should investigate your own biases about money with Kabir Sagal. This science of success continues to grow with more than 875,000 downloads, listeners in over 100 countries, hitting number one new and noteworthy, and more. I get listener comments and emails all the time asking me, Matt, how do you organize and remember all this incredible information? A lot of our listeners are curious about how I keep track of all the incredible knowledge I get from reading hundreds of books, interviewing amazing experts, listening to awesome podcasts, and more. Because of that, we've created an epic resource just for you, a detailed guide called How to Organize and Remember Everything. And you can get it completely for free by texting the word SMARTER to the number 44222. Again, it's a guide we created called How to Organize and Remember Everything. All you have to do to get it is to text the word SMARTER to the number 44222 or go to scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and put in your email. 
In our previous episode, we discussed the fundamental principles of game theory. We correctly guessed the answers to SAT questions without ever knowing what the questions were. We looked at how to use game theory in practical ways and went deep on how a college professor and his student started a beverage company, sold a billion bottles of tea, and competed against Coke, Nestle, and other major players to become incredibly successful with our guest, Barry Nailbuff. If you want to learn how to apply the lessons of game theory to being successful in your life, definitely listen to that episode. Today, we have another fascinating guest on the show, Kabir Sagal. Kabir is a former vice president in emerging markets at J.P. Morgan. He's a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author of the book Coined and has served as a speechwriter for John Kerry during his presidential campaign. He's been featured on Fortune, the Harvard Business Review, many other publications. He's also a regular contributor to CNBC, as well as a Grammy-winning producer, composer, and jazz musician. Kabir, welcome to the Science of Success. Thank you so much for having me. Really a pleasure to be here. Well, we're super excited to have you on today. So for listeners who who may not be familiar with you, kind of fill in some gaps in that background and, and tell us a little bit about yourself. You covered a lot of it. I guess I define myself mostly as a writer, and that's writing words and writing music and creating content. And for me, that that took me to that's taken me to write several books. You talked about my first book on on coined. History of Money, but I've written about jazz and I've written, I think, up seven books now, children's books as well. So that's one of my passions is writing and also uh, writing music. I've just finished writing my first musical opera on the financial debt crisis. So I try to be interdisciplinary in my topics and also my approach, but the one commonality is trying to express myself through the written and spoken and performed word. That's fascinating. It, it kind of reminds me a little bit of, and I'm sure you you thought of the comparison, but almost Hamilton-esque in the sense of like combining these two totally different mediums, but an opera about the financial crisis sounds really, really interesting. Yeah. And you know, the thing is, is when you want to create a real unique idea, you can have a lot of success by sort of mashing up two different disciplines together. So like if I were going to write an opera, there's not, there, I mean, I could write a, an opera in, in the vein of things you've heard before, but why not take it in a completely new direction? And, you know, that's why the opera Nixon in China did so well, because they took a story about Richard Nixon going to China and turning that into music, something unexpected. And so this idea, there's like incremental ideas of like staying within one profession or one discipline and like incrementing the idea or improving a product five, 10%. But when you take one discipline, and mash it up with another discipline, you start to get all these different combinations that you didn't think of before. And it creates, it sort of amplifies possibility. And it, you also create a new aesthetic, you create a new brand, you create a new way of looking at the world. So for, it might seem weird, but it definitely gives you the many more, many more permutations of, of invention and innovation. It's fascinating. I love that. Uh, I love that advice. And as, as somebody who's been so creative across seemingly kind of disparate and unrelated fields, I think that's that's some deep wisdom to to share with our listeners. I love it. I'm curious. I'd love to I'd love to kind of dig in a little bit and talk about some of the kind of core concepts and lessons from Coined. Sure. One of the one of the first things I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on, just really simply. You know, I think people have a lot of preconceptions about this, but what is money? It's a good question. The typical definition of money that comes from economic theory and economists is that money is three things. Money is a unit of value. It's a it's an instrument of exchange, and it's used for 
you know, counting things, a unit of value, instrument of exchange, and basically wait for accounting of value. And I've always found that to be sort of a very limiting definition of money. You know, yeah, we, I mean, if you define a, a unit of exchange is, or a unit of value is something you count, a, a store of value is something that captures money, an instrument of exchange is something we transact. But money could be more than that thing. Money to me, and I define it in my book, is really a symbol of value, a symbol of value. Because anything that represents value has sort of like a neurological trigger in our brain. And that means that a potato could function as money or some type of currency. You know, if there's an invasion by aliens into the earth and there's some kind of rare metal that they bring and becomes valuable, that new metal will become some, will, will take on monetary value. So anything that simulates sort of the, the reward circuitry of the brain, and we can get into that, that to me is what money is, a symbol of value. And I think probably the economist who most well described it was Milton Friedman, who said, you know, whatever society determines to be money will be money. So you can go back to caveman days or you can go today. Whatever the people deem to be money will be money. So it's very user defined. And today, what is money? Money, the definition of money is changing. And it, it always will be changing because our minds are changing and you know our brains are plastic and the neurological wirings are changing. And it'll continue to change as the use cases change. Well, I, I definitely want to dig into kind of the psychology and some of the reward circuitry around money. But before we do, I'd love to, and I, and I think this is a kind of a natural segue into that. Tell me a little bit about the the phrase you talk about, the biology of exchange and, and how you kind of in the book, you start with the really kind of physical biological components of it. And even the, the journey you took to the Galapagos Islands and other things, I'd love to kind of weave that into how our brains think about money. Sure. Well, you know, I started writing this book with the history of money. And you could uh, think about if you're going to write a book on the history of money, where will you start? And so most books will start in, I guess, Mesopotamia or the beginning of human civilization, sort of in the Neolithic era of 10,000 years ago, or maybe even the Great Rift Valley in Africa. But I was like, well, money expresses something deeply survival-based and evolutionary. And I started thinking about it, and sure enough, I said, I think there's a biological component of why we use money. And in order to dramatize this point, I went to the Galapagos Islands, because that's where Charles Darwin, that's where he came up or was inspired to come up with his theory of natural selection, evolution by natural selection. So I get to the Galapagos, go and hang out with some friends who are marine biologists, and what do we do? We go diving into the water, and all of a sudden there's this sea turtle that comes up to me, and there are some ras fish, these little fish that are going up next to its fin, and they're cleaning the turtle, ingesting these parasites. And what becomes clear is there this is an exchange going on. The turtle is getting cleaned, and in exchange, the fish are ingesting or getting the calories they need to survive the, the parasites. And so this is obviously an example of symbiosis. And the turtle and the fish is not the only example of this. Of course, throughout the Galapagos, at different stages of the ecosystem, you see symbiosis. You see uh, transfers. And the, tra the, the, the first type of currency, the natural currency, the, the currency of the biological world is energy, 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 energy. So when, you, when this starts to get mapped onto the story of humanity, you start to see the first types of currencies, the first types of things that become traded as a currency or some kind of value is food products. So you look at salt or barley or, or butter. 
And these are items that give us the calories we need to survive, that we take these things and we ingest it and it gives us basically a survival mechanism. So even today, you can say, well, you know, that's a far cry, but you know, what do we use money on today? Well, we use money to acquire the resources, namely the food and the energy products that we need to survive. We literally need bread to get bread. And so it's been abstracted away because for over you know thousands of years, but its original purpose, money was an instrument to acquire the needs to survive. And that has, there's genetic implications, there's biological implications, and there's a lot of uh, supporting evidence from neuroscientists that show that there's actually, this whole energy concept is actually the evolutionary historians that are looking at, indeed, it wasn't until the brain ex- expanded and, and we got symbolic thought that you know, money as we knew it was invented. But at its core, money is really an evolutionary product. And that's why I went to the Galapagos to dramatize that account. So after going to the Galapagos, where was the next place on your journey, the next destination to kind of follow the history of money? It's a good question. I think for me, it was getting together with a neuroeconomist. Because when I started realizing that there was a biological input, there's an input for money and why we use it, I wanted to talk to someone who knew about this. So I met with uh, Dr. Brian Knudsen at Stanford University, who's one of our leading neuroeconomists, sort of like an emerging discipline of brain scientists that look at financial decisions, largely through MRI and brain scans. And neuroscience is really sort of like, as they say, 90% neuroscience, 10% economics. And hopefully that'll change. So more economists start factoring in brain insights. But you know, we talked about when I say the word money, like your audience, when you when it hears when your audience listens to the word money, there may be an actual increase in the skin conductancy, well, amount of the amount of electrical current going through your skin, just at the your thought of making money or hearing the word money. So there's a biological change. There is a study that shows that, well, if you take money and count in China, they did a study where they had people counting large denomination bills. And then they took their fingers and put it in hot, scalding water. And the people that counted the money reported feeling less pain than the people that were counting blank pieces of paper and then putting their fingers in hot, scalding water. So in this way, that money sort of dulls your senses. So I, I went to Brian Knudsen, this neuroscientist, and we talked about, hey, like, is there a biological, neurological reason for this? And he says, absolutely, there is. There's a part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, and it's deep within sort of the evolutionary part of the brain, the limbic system of the brain, and it fires incessantly at the thought of money. And he's done brain science studies, and others have done studies that have proven this out. There was a study at Harvard that showed that people who are high on cocaine, looking at their brain scan, their nucleus accumbens is firing incessantly. And it looks the same as if as when someone's about to make money. So the brain scan of a coke addict and someone about to make money, the brain scans look almost indistinguishable. But Dr. Knudsen then he looked at, took a heterosexual men and he showed them pictures of dead bodies and naked women and, uh, and money. And what got the most excitement, what got the most excitement out of men was thinking about making money more than, you know, getting together with a girl. And so it just shows you that we're deeply wired for this thing that, to make money because we realize that we need it to survive because survival you know, is, is probably is prerequisite to reproduction. So that was the next step on my journey was understanding the genetic components and then having a neuroscientist uh, and reading through the neuroscientific literature to realize, wow, there is actually 
hardwiring in the brain for money and, and things that function like money. Really, really interesting. The research studies are so intriguing, especially the one about the, well, I mean, the cocaine finding is fascinating. So I'm curious, what are some of the other kind of components of the psychology of money? Well, a lot of it comes to your genetic composition too. People don't often think about it, but you know, there's a, a group of studies called gene studies, twin studies, that they take identical twins who have the same genotype, they have the same genes, and they separate them over long periods of time. And then they ask these twins to make an asset allocation decision. So do you want to put your money in stocks, bonds, or cash? And so they found that twins, even if they've been separated over a long period of time, identical twins, that they invest and they park their money in similar similar proportions, that your genetics can, in fact, influence your financial spending decisions. Dr. Knudsen and others, they've worked at looking at your credit score, actually, and they found that there's one type of gene, it's called the COMT gene, and it's there's two variants of it, and it's evenly dispersed within the population, these, these two types of alleles. And they find that if you have one variant, you're more likely to be risk averse to put more money in bonds and cash and to have, you know, kind of a, a, a decent credit score. And if you have the other allele, you're more likely to be risk seeking to put more money in stocks and higher performing assets, but also riskier assets and to have a lower credit score. And they found that over time, among the sample that they were tracking, that this one variant to the gene could explain about 97 points on your credit score. And that's about 20% of your credit score. And this shows you that, you know, when you're making your financial decisions, that oftentimes it can be your genes manifesting themselves. The decisions are being, you know, what you're buying is being manifested by genetic impulses. And so, you know, I, I tread carefully here because, look, you can obviously triumph over your genes. You're not destined to be doomed by your genes. And you can you know, get in, get educated. And if you're not very good at handling your money, you can definitely, you know, get classes and, and so forth. But there is something to be said that if you're not good with money, you can maybe blame your parents and say, you know, my parents maybe do it because it's their gene pool after all. But there's definitely genetic reasons and, and, and impetus to how we spend. I'm curious, another concept that you talk about that I, that I know is kind of one of the next steps on this understanding of money that you talk about and coined is the idea of the anthropology of debt. I'd love for you to share that story. Sure. So most histories of money, going back to Adam Smith and Aristotle, they say that money was invented through barter, right? So we've all heard this, that there was this land and someone had apples, another person had bananas, and they were trying to trade with each other. And so they decided to barter, and then all this bartering started going on. And eventually money was invented out of this bartering as a way to replace barter. And so that whole idea of that bartering led to money has been with us in economic literature for you know thousands of years. And so anthropologists have gone back and they've studied it and they say, well, wait a second, this is actually not the case. That you know, societies, there's almost never been a society that functions on barter as the principal means of exchange. In fact, it's usually debt, you know, like social debt. Because you know, if I'm bartering is what you do with someone when you're not gonna see again. Like, you know, someone comes into your village, you're like, oh hey, okay. Let's trade something and get something of value for each other. And so because, you know, we want to make sure we have a fair trade. But if you're if I know you, you're part of my family, you're part of my tribe or the the neighboring society and we have a lingering relationship, then let's just do the 
let's just do the transaction on debt. Like, you'll owe me one. Okay. And so this whole idea of social debt is really one of the first and probably most ubiquitous currencies in the world. You think back to Neolithic times that if you're a caveman and you get your, you catch some game and you bring it to the feeding station and you're going to invite your friends because if you don't invite your friends, there the day will come when you will be hungry and then they're not going to, you know, repay you. You won't be repaid because you didn't really offer to reciprocate or, or invite them. And so think about you're invited, this caveman inviting you to a, the feeding session is basically like a forward derivative derivatives contract today that look, you're going to owe me in the future at some time. And I'm not sure what the value is going to be, but we'll figure it out later. That's kind of what a forward derivatives contract is when it's traded on the market and on Wall Street today. And so when you look at the first types of currencies in the world, it's actually not coins or paper. It's in ancient Mesopotamia, the, the records show that it's, it's loan do documents, clay tablets that were denominating uh, loans in silver and barley, basically saying, you owe this person X, you owe this person Y. And that's the first type of sort of monetary instrument that gets invented is credit and debt. So there's been some great writers on who talked about this, that when you think about you know, distance, you think about a mile as a measurement of distance, you think about an inch as a measurement of distance, start thinking about money as a measurement of debt. Money is a measurement of, of yeah, is like a way to capture and understand how much debt is in the world. Because debt is the way, even today, when you think about how our monetary system works with fractional reserve banking, is basically we're taking $1 and we're through credit multiplying it through our society into $99. So that's, when you ask about the anthropology of debt, it's really reacquainting ourselves with what money really is which is a measurement of debt. What's the difference between currency and money? Well, <laughs> you know, the currency, I, if you break it down, credit, currency comes from a word, carrere in Italian, which I means like to flow. And currency is, I like to say, a broader use of money. Anything can function as a currency, right? So like I was saying before, there's different, different types of currency. There's uh, social currency, there's, there's financial currency, there's different types of monetary currency. So I think it's like, if, if you're thinking about it in a scientific term, like the mother genus, if you will, would be currency, and money tends to be a financial type of currency. And the word money comes from the Roman goddess Juno Moneta, and who was the god, goddess that was sort of supposed to look after the treasury. And after the Gauls came in and sacked Rome, or that, that treasury, you know, moneta means to warn in Italian. So uh, that name kind of, over the many years, it stuck money. So to answer your question, currency is like a broader, the broader look at money. And how I look at money throughout the book is really looking at, looking at currency throughout the world. And money is definitely the financial child of the word currency. Tell us about your visit to Mongolia and why you went there. So Mongolia is a fascinating place. I went there, again, to dramatize the history of money. And because I was intrigued that paper money and a lot of monetary concepts that we think of as very Western really started in the East. And the Mongolians get sort of a, a bad rap for Genghis Khan, and he was a brutal dictator. But there are also parts of his empire that were quite modern. You know, Genghis Khan, he basically unified and the Mongols unified so much of the of the Orient and the, the West. And he had a lot of modern innovations. Like he brought 
modern postal system. And, you know, he set up a postal system. There was a freedom of religion and so forth. He also precipitated, that was really the beginning of paper money as we know it. And really it was Kublai Khan. Kublai Khan, he, he was like, basically, I want to invade China. And so he went to the Southern Song Dynasty and he felled that kingdom. And he took over the Chinese empire, essentially. And he realized right away that he needed to use something to unify his lands and he needed something to create value throughout his lands. So he issued, issued paper money and paper money was eventually, you know, it was initially backed by silk and I think, yeah, essentially silk and, and silver. And, uh, you know, the great Marco Polo writes about Kublai Khan as the Khan prints money out of the barks of trees. But then they started spending so much money, they started running out of silver and silk. So Kublai Khan does something. He decides to cut that link between money and metal. And he issues these edicts saying that if you do not use my money, you'll be put to death. I will kill you. He also issues edicts that say essentially that if you counterfeit this money, I will also kill you. And so you start to see the money is really backed by fear of the kingdom or the Khan in this case and force. And so this money starts to circulate and throughout this part of China, throughout the Mongol Empire, which was quite vast. And over time, there was they started printing more and more of it. There was a monetary crisis, which led to inflation. And then an inflation turned into a full-fledged economic collapse. And, uh, you know, then there was a plague and all those other, you know, healthcare problems. But that part of the Mongol Empire fell. And now, you know, I went to Karakoram, Mongolia, which was the seat of the ancient Mongol Empire. and there's nothing there anymore except for, except for some ruins. And it just shows you that, you know, civilizations come and go. And one of the most important decisions that any civilization, any society can make is what will function as money, but also making prudent financial decisions to make sure that they're not living beyond their means. Because if you do, you could go the way of that part of the Mongol Empire or any country that's really fallen in disrepair because of their economic misfortunes. Very interesting that the the Mongols are essentially the one of the creators of fiat currency. Right. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people lay claim to it. You know, some people say the Tang Dynasty in China, which was uh, 9th century AD, they invented paper money. But money didn't really function and flourish until the Mongols. And then you have sort of the checking system that came about in the Venetian times. So money's really been a global and incremental innovation and, and almost every country has adapted it for their own use case. And uh, so many different things have functioned as money throughout thousands of years of human history. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. 
Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hiring the right person takes time. Time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire, because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. Another facet of, of the kind of anthropology of money you talk about tipping and, and what tipping behavior can say about us, but you, you also share the story of a Native American potlatch. I'd love to hear that story. A Native American potlatch is a practice when a tribe or a group of tribes will invite everyone to a ceremony. And you hold a potlatch during a very special occasion. So let's say there's a new chief or a new king or a new queen or someone's getting married. and the practice is you line up everyone and everyone sits in order according to their status and they're singing and there's dancing and there's a lot of food. And then at the end, there's a gift giveaway and everyone starts getting gifts. And so the king or the queen or the chief, whoever will start giving gifts to everyone who's been invited and your gift, the type of gift and the, you know, the expense of the gift is based on your status within the tribe. So if you get something amazing, if you get a nice piece of meat, for example, that means you're respected. If you get something that's not so good, meat might seem might be that you're too junior or you don't have much respect. And so the potlatch became a way of using currency or giving currency, giving something of value, is a way to reinforce status within the community. And so over time, these potlatches became competitive. They became very, yeah, very very competitive. Where other tribes would come and they would invite a neighboring tribe and they would hold a potlatch and they would give so much of their wealth as a way to shame their guests saying, oh, I'm giving you so much of my wealth. I don't need, I, I can afford to give you, give you all my wealth because, or all this wealth because I'm so rich. And so essentially they were big timing each other. And so the potlatch became a very competitive thing. And this, you know, has implications even to today. But I should say that in Native American tribes, Native American community, 
gifts are not something that you keep. Gifts are something that you kind of keep on passing to other people. You know, the term Indian giver, we in the West, Americans, we, we may see it as a negative thing. You know, Lewis and Clark, when they did their travels across America, they would give gifts in their trade with Native Americans, but then the Native Americans would give the, the gifts that they had just received to other people, or they would give the gift back to Lewis and Clark and the early settlers. And this was really bizarre. Why are they giving their gifts away? You know, a gift is meant to be appreciated. But in Native American communities, if you just hold on to a gift, it loses its spirit of being a gift. You have to keep on giving it. And that giving and receiving defines social roles within the community. And it's something that we do. I, I saw some poll recently in, uh, around holiday season that a large swath of Americans are embarrassed by saying, admitting that they're regifting something. But a large swath of Americans also do regift. So we, we all do it. A lot of us do it. So that shows you what a potlatch is and how sort of gifting is so endemic to the idea of money and how even today this idea of regifting helps define where you are in a social community, not only Native American communities, but also in um, our day-to-day lives as well. Have you ever read the book Non-Zero by Robert Wright? No. Tell me about it. I think you'd really like it. It's a, it's a book about uh, – he essentially uses – combines game theory and social anthropology to describe – the evolution of human societies. And uh, it's, it's really, really good read. And we'll, we'll include it in the show notes as well for listeners who want to check it out. But he talks a little bit about potlatches. And, and I think even goes, there were some tribes where the tradition became so extreme that they would burn all the gifts. And it would be like, who can burn more stuff as kind of a demonstration of, you know, how wealthy they were and how powerful they were that they could torch, you know, copious amounts of food and supplies and all kinds of stuff. Wow. How perverse, you know, uh, and absurd, but at the same time, you know, revelatory about what a society values and wants to express about itself. So what is the difference between the concept of soft money and the concept of hard money? And what are both of those? So soft money, I define as, well, let me start over. I'll, I'll take it first by looking at hard money. Hard money is money that's backed by a commodity or you know, a metal. We often think about like gold as being a hard money that the gold standard that it used to be that the dollar or the pound was redeemable by some amount of gold currency, by some amount of gold, and that there was something in, you know, there is a special room somewhere that you could go and exchange your money and get an adequate amount or an equal amount of hard currency. And so, I define hard money as just that, metal-backed money. And in some cases, you can call it proto-money, anything that has some sort of like intrinsic worth, like like meat or you know salt or barley, all these things like coffee, beans. Th- these things serve as having value to humans, that you can eat it, you can consume it, they're instantly valuable. That's, these are different types of hard currencies. Soft money is the, sort of the opposite of that, which is an article of faith. It's paper. It's basically saying this piece of paper will is basically an IOU from the government. And it's not necessarily an IOU for gold. In fact, it's not <laughs> it's really an IOU saying that this is a legal tender for all debts private and public. And so people say that the US government military or the US government, you know, is the backing of the US dollar, but really it's the faith in our institutions, the faith in our government that the dollar will be backed by you know, our government to come to the rescue, much like it did during the great financial crisis in 2008, 2009. 
So increasingly, we are in a soft money world. And some people say we need to get back to a hard money world where there's the gold standard and so forth. But I would say that getting back to a gold standard would be very deflationary for the environment, for, for the economy. In fact, Winston Churchill, who when he was the head of the exchequer in Britain, he said it was the worst mistake of his political life to try to get back to the gold standard at the same rate at which Britain left because there was like a massive amount, I think 50% deflation and unemployment and millions of people going out of work because, you know, trying to get back to this gold standard. Whereas I always use a, use a thought experiment that let's say there's a financial crisis in America and you're the president of the United States and you have two options. The first option is you can inflate and issue more soft money and sort of paper over the problems and, you know, hope that you can stimulate away through government spending problems, or you can do very little or do nothing or say, oh, we're not going to issue any more money. We're going to have deflation. Well, one's interventionist and one's not, and you probably don't want to be a politician who's looking like he's not doing anything or being very hard line. And that's why you always have this kind of policy of interventionism and always have this policy of spending and soft money. And that's why soft money is so ubiquitous in the world, because it's more of a it's like a silent tax on all of us that the government can rob us, you know, very slowly with the value of money. Like the dollar has lost 81 percent of its value on a purchasing price parity level over uh, the last 30, 40 years. So soft money is with us, not going anywhere anytime soon. And <laughs> that's, and I think we're stuck with it. In many ways, it's the, the modern version of what Kublai Khan began. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there is a history of money, and I talk about it in my book, that the history of, of political leaders that have sought, the, uh, sought to use soft money and have, you know, and there's been problems, there's been, you know, consequences for that. Kublai Khan would be one. You could look at John Law in the 1920s, early, uh, 1960, sorry, sorry, 1716 to 1720 in France. You could look at, uh, Benjamin Franklin who wanted, you know, more banknotes issued, Abraham Lincoln. These are all people that took us away from hard money. Franklin Roosevelt, Richard Nixon. So there's many, many world leaders that have pushed us in the direction of soft money over thousands of years. The the most kind of interesting description or kind of criticism of the gold standard that I've ever heard is is the idea that essentially the expansion of credit in an economy that's tied to the gold standard is not determined by, you know, forethought or economic policy. It's solely determined by the random fluctuation of rocks that are pulled from the ground. Right. Well I think Warren Buffett has a great line that we dig up we we dig up uh, metal from these holes in the ground and put them in other holes in the ground in our vault, right? So we can store them. And it, any Martian looking at this would be like, why, why did he do this? And so it's just, you know, somewhere you get back to the evolutionary thought. If somewhere the idea of shiny metals and value, those neurons fired together, maybe it was something that, that attracted us that maybe early primates were attracted to something that had shiny luster and then it was valuable. Because there's very little use case for gold other than sort of like in fighting fire. They use it sort of in uh, preventing fires, it's resistance. But there's very little use case for gold other than ornamentation. And it's been sort of a principle of value for us. And it's kind of hard to explain why that happened other than we were just naturally attracted to it. Buffett also has a great criticism of, of gold as a quote unquote asset class, where he says if you had all the gold in the world, you can't do anything with it, right? Which is kind of what you're saying. But 
you know, he, he compares it to an asset that's actually income producing, right? Like if you had a factory, you can make things and sell them and it returns capital, whereas gold just sits there. It doesn't produce anything. Right. It's not a productive asset. It's just a rock. Right. <laughs> exactly. That's what it is. It's a wise man. He is a wise man. Changing gears, I'm curious, you've talked about how does weather impact people's financial behavior? So weather manifests itself through our financial decisions. You can see it in stock market returns. You know, going back to uh, like 80 years ago, we have data on weather patterns. We also have weather in, we also have data on stock market returns. It's the researchers looked at trading patterns in four of the largest markets, I think New York, Tokyo, Hong Kong, and London. And they looked again at the data and they found that sure enough that on sunny days, the markets performed and annualized like 25% or something like that versus cloudy days, which is like 12%. And so it shows you that one type of business barometer or market barometer is the weather. And you know, I've never had a client of mine and my client clients manage billions of dollars. I never had a client say, you know, Kabir, like the sun made me buy that stock. But oftentimes we're not really aware of our what's shaping our financial decisions. And this can be, you know, found on a very micro level too. Ask any waiter, and you asked about tipping before, but ask any waiter and they'll say that when you see people outside on a sunny day versus a cloudy day or versus seeing them inside, when you see them outside on a sunny day, people are in, you know, a better mood. People are in a better frame of mind. And this study was replicated, I think, over a couple dozen cities. And they found that waiters, sure enough, would get more money when their guests were seated outside on a sunny day. So again, there's genetics, there's biology, there's weather factors that shape our financial decisions. Even when you're not thinking about money, you're thinking about money. In the book, you talk about the soul of money. What does that mean? So I think the way you use money can ultimately determine the fate of your soul, which is a loaded comment, I know, but that's how, if you're a believer in the scriptures, whether it's the three Abrahamic religions, or I've also looked at Hinduism, that's what the scripture says. So, you know, I went to Calcutta, and I went to the home for the dying and destitute, Mother Teresa, and there I found a young teenager, and he told me that he was there because of what the scripture teaches, the gospel teaches. And, you know, very, I don't, you know, when I was his age, I was focused on other things. I wasn't focused on helping lepers. And so I went back and read the scriptures. And sure enough, the gospel is pretty clear. I mean, in the book of Matthew, there's eight parables. And eight of the, eight of the 10 parables, Jesus is talking about money or wealth, how to use money. He, he talks about money so often, it always makes you feel uncomfortable. Jesus, Jesus is always giving financial lessons of what to do with money and not to squander it, to make sure that you're valuing things that are you know, that are everlasting. And even on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, lay up your treasures in heaven and not on earth. And then he goes on to say something very precarious that people have been trying to work out for generations. Theologians have been arguing about this. He says essentially, and I don't want to misquote Jesus, but he says essentially that, you know, that the the uh, eye of the body, do not darken the eye. Do not darken the, the eye of your body. And then he goes on to talk about money again. And the question is, like, what is he talking about with this idea of the lamp and darkening your eye? Theologians have believed that he's talking about greed. He's talking about greed. And, you know, because greed is something you cannot see 
in yourself. You see it in other people. And uh, greed is something that darkens your eye, meaning that, again, you can't see it. You can always say, oh, someone else is making more money or someone else has a better reputation or someone else has more social media followers. And in fact, there's a pastor who, who talks about this who's been hearing confessionals for 25 years. He says, you know, I've never ever has someone come into the confessional and said, forgive me, Father, I have sinned. I'm too greedy. He said, it just doesn't happen. People <laughs> aren't concerned about how much money they have. But Jesus is always putting through, putting forward the test that, you know, if you want to follow me, sell all, sell all of your possessions and follow me. Detach from money. And that's not something we want to hear because it's not practical. It's very difficult. You know, if we live according to the scriptures, then how you use money at least can be a determinant of how the fate of our souls. And if we lived in a, you know, how we use money can determine our character. And so I sort of ended my journey, and I wrote about this in my book, at a temple in India and learning about what Hinduism says about money. And I thought that, I thought the advice in Hinduism to be the most practical and nuanced out of the time I spent looking at religion and money. Because in Hinduism, there's a few goals to, like, I think four goals to life. One of the goals is called Artha which means wealth, it is your job, it is your duty in life to make artha, to make money, because you got to take care of your family, you got to take care of your friends, and people are going to look at you for that, artha. But there will come a time in your life when you realize that chasing money and chasing status, you realize it'll leave you a little empty inside. And that's when you prepare for the end goal of Hinduism, which is called moksha, or liberation, which is, okay, I have attain these things. I've done it ethically. I've got all these resources. I made money. I made a name for myself. And now it's time to sort of detach from these things. And this can correspond to periods of your life. So as you're young and you're listening to the, this podcast and you're trying to learn the tips, the science of success and try to succeed, that's awesome. Do it. Make Artha. Make your money. Make your status. But as you get older, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, and you, you know, start thinking about leaving the world, you can start relinquishing these things and start realizing that, you know, it's okay to renounce these things and leave things to other people. This could also correspond to periods every day, which is, you know, in the morning you're making money, you're making a name for yourself, you're going to work, but at night you detach from these things. And it's with finding some balance or some harmony in your life. And it just shows you that it's good to go after to make the money, but also realize the moksha or liberation from it is also determination. Also, it would also focus you on this idea of, the soul of money, meaning that how you use money, arguably, again, according to these scriptures, can de determine the fate of your soul. So for listeners who, who kind of want some practical sort of actionable steps that they can take to implement some of these findings about money and, and the history of money, what are some ideas or strategies that you'd recommend for them? Or what's maybe one piece, one kind of simple piece of homework that you would give to them? It's a good question. I think my book wasn't so much about how to make money. It was about understanding money and its role in our lives. And, you know, with your focus on psychology and sort of the science of success, one of the probably the easiest places to look here are in biases, right? And cognitive biases of how we use money. So there's all kinds of biases. You know, if, if you haven't read Daniel Kahneman's work, Thinking Fast and Slow, but a lot of people have documented these biases. One of them is called the availability bias, right? That the more often you can think of something, you start to inflate the probability of it actually happening. A good case of this is my father. He plays the lottery every week. And I say, okay, why do you play the lottery every week? Because he says, oh, I see it on the news and I could win. I could, I could be there holding that big check. I was like, well, you haven't seen the million of other people that lost. 
And so we started, again, to inflate the probability of it actually happening. So I would say in some, if you're looking at trying to get smarter of how you use money, start to think about the biases that you live by. So a practical one is if you hear about a stock idea or, you know, if you hear about a new company you want to invest in, give it three months, you know, and let, let it cool off a little bit. That's, that company's not going to go away. The stock's still going to be there. And because you're familiar with that information, you start to get really excited about it and start to make an emotional decision. I would say start to institute time constraints. Anytime you hear about something you want to buy, you know, put a month, put two months before you actual before you actually buy it, because then you'll actually cool to the decision. And if you still want to do it, then you'll do it. But you won't be making such an emotional and perhaps irrational decision immediately. Where can listeners find you, your books, your, and your music online? You can find me at www.kabir.cc. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure to uh, include that in the show notes so that everybody can find the books and, and listen to some of your music and, uh, and explore these topics more deeply. Well, Kabir, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, it's been a fascinating conversation, and uh, we really appreciate having you on here. My pleasure. Great to be with you. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. Listeners like you are why we do this podcast. The emails and stories we receive from listeners around the globe bring us joy and fuel our mission to unleash human potential. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at scienceofsuccess.co. That's M-A-T-T at scienceofsuccess.co. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. The greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes, because that helps more and more people discover the science of success. I get a ton of listeners asking, Matt, how do you organize and remember all this information? Because of that, we've created an amazing free guide for all of our listeners. And you can get it by texting the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222, or by going to scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and joining our email list. If you want to get all this incredible information, links, transcripts, everything we talked about in this show, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get them at scienceofsuccess.co. Just hit the show notes button at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. Oh, 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 oh,